3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and the Borong people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and the custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay respect to elders, past, present, and extend that respect to the other Indigenous Australians who may in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonization and settlement, and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So good, good to morning. be here on International Women's Day. Yay! Hooray. <laughs> Happy International Women's Day. Yeah, and how about that almost, I don't know if it's a full moon, but pretty close. A shining as we drove in this morning or biked in, whatever we did. Yeah, especially for women. Yes, yeah, Wonderful start to the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then, then all the shiny silver... Um, uh, banners that were in the just as we came into the studio. So, oh, yeah. did you see yeah. that? We're, yeah. yeah, we're nope. dressing up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, the 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 banners and the streamers on the front actually created by me. Oh yeah. well, I, I did the decorations for thank International Women's Day. Well, it well, thank you, Grace. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> it felt so good. Cause I thought, oh, who's done this? Oh, so now we yeah. know. Yeah. I actually thought it would, it would turn out really ugly because it was a bit. Um, the lengths of the streamers were a bit different and all, so it kind of annoyed me because I wanted it to be straight, but yeah. You're obviously a perfectionist, Grace. <laughs> yeah. Because diversity. Like, yeah, yeah, I put the colours. I, I, I like the diversity in the colours that I put as well. I just wanted to put purple because that's women's colour, but then like I figured it would look too empty, so I added a bit more pink as well. Since pink is also kind of women's colour as well. Yeah. 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 But we don't want to be Fantastic. too pink either. <laughs> yeah. And alternative sexualities to sexual diversity. Pink, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so how does it feel on, on the, uh, in the morning of International Women's Day? I think it feels pretty exciting to be coming in to uh, present our show. Mm-hmm. We are for women mm-hmm. and we're here to present our show this morning celebrating who we are and yeah and all day 24 hours That's here right. at CCR with women's voices and look I just want to thank Idwin speaking of amazing women who just presented Earth Matters for us just before the show started so big thanks to Idwin as well for her work and a former Wednesday breakfast presenter Ooh. yeah and still occasionally does uh, join us yeah yeah. yeah. So yes, great. I great did a day. great special with Edwin just mm. before Christmas. Speaking mm. of uh, she did. women's voices, yeah. So yeah, we uh, were lucky to have that contribution. Um, so yeah, we'll be recognising the contributions and struggles and celebrations of women and non-conforming people throughout the day here at Three CR. And yeah, it just feels really good to sit in that space, hear the conversations. Mm-hmm. And to sort of celebrate, I suppose, the exchange and the storytelling that takes place in um, these circles that help us understand each other, learn from each other and make the world a better place for all women and non-conforming 
people. Yeah. I think it's it's so important, like not just on this day, but every day, we talk about、uh, we have to share about what is going on around the world, what's happening in even not just in Australia, but you know any part any part of any other countries because a lot of women are still struggling, a lot of us still don't have our voices. Uh, that are being heard, so it's so important to just continue and continue letting people know. So I、yes. think this 24-hour、mm. broadcast is such a great thing because even though it's only for a day, but it really just whoever is tuning in, whoever is listening in, they just listen to everything that they are so they need need to know. Yeah. That's right, and you mentioned、uh, what's happening around the world, which、uh, I think is a great segue to our show this morning because we、mm-hmm. we have quite an international focus this morning. Ah,、uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, we're celebrating cultural diversity as well as showcasing some of the the voices、mm-hmm. uh, from different parts of the globe. Yeah. yeah, and Grace, I think you're going to start that off in Malaysia. Yes. So f-、um, first up for me, I'm actually bringing something a little special.、Uh, this is all the way from Malaysia, as part of me being as part of me being part of my home country, Malaysia. I spoke to a an, a true inspiration.、Uh, her name is Wong Kai. Wong Kai Hui, who is a young Malaysian female journalist, who、uh, actually is now based in Taiwan because she's actually studying there for her masters. So I talked to her about her journalism journey in our home country, and also, by the way, she's actually a writer for Missing's Perspective. Yep, which is our like、um, co- it's a global media company, but it's from Australia, and it's for young women to.、Um, Posts on missing perspectives、um, that are often、mm. overlooked in mainstream media. Yeah, fantastic! I can't wait. And it sounds like she's been、uh, involved in lots of really interesting work. You said that she's、yep. engaged in environmental、uh, rights as well as、uh, trans yes. rights. And yes, so basically,、um, she act-、uh, before she went to Taiwan, she actually worked as part of Malaysia Kini. It's a independent journalism platform in Malaysia. And she also, during the, around that time, received the 2021 Thomson Foundation Young Journalism Award. So this was awarded to her for two of her articles regarding the impact on the environment of、uh, mining projects. And she managed to really persist to un- dis- uncover the links of those mining projects to Malaysian royalty. Yep, which is something I would say is very brave of her to do. So. And、um, but one of the third, one of the last articles that she also submitted because she submitted three of them、uh, was looking at transgender healthcare rights in Malaysia, and is this is also another very, I would say, considered very big open, to- openly open topic that she has talked about in Malaysia because when it comes to LGBTQ plus rights, that's you pretty much don't really can't you can't really say much about it there. Because we're still a very conservative, conservative country.、Mm. Yes, so, yeah, there's a lot to do in that. And this is、era. why it's so important to hear these stories and voices because、yeah. we can't make assumptions about the space in which、mm. women and non-conforming people exist around the world. It, it is different everywhere, and、yep. uh, those voices are so important. Yeah, and and what what's coming up after that? After that.、Um, I'm going to play a speech from、um, Deb Haaland, who is U.S. Cabinet Seg- Secretary, and she's a First Nations woman from America. And she speaks to.、Uh, she came to Perth recently to speak to an audience about、um, Indigenous knowledge in、um, 
America, uh, for Native Americans and uh, Native American women in, um, uh, sorry, and Native American women and, you know, how we can build a, how um, First Nations women in Australia can build a solidarity with them and, you know, learn from their, or just learn from each other's experiences. Yep, so that's going to be coming up after Grace's. Fantastic. Yeah. Judith, what do we have? Well, I'm, I'm, I was very excited, actually, to be able to speak with Dr. Dara Conduit. She's a lecturer in political science at the University of Melbourne and also a non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute in Washington, D.C. And what we talked about was the response to the earthquake in northwest Syria, which was very delayed because of international politics. And in fact, aid didn't get through to almost a week after the earthquake. So people suffered. There are a lot of deaths. So it's a bit of a sad story, of course, on International Women's Day, but it's the sort of thing that will affect women, uh, certainly in that earthquake, but generally, um, yeah, how women um, negotiate and get those stories out as well. So Dara has uh, done research in Syria. She's very familiar with the country, and um, she's also, and this is especially wonderful for International Women's Day, she's a member of the Women Middle East Researchers in Australia group. So she'll talk a little bit about that. But mostly we, we will hear about Syria. That's been the focus of that interview. That's coming up at around, uh, I think, around 7.50, something like that. Mm. And then just after 8, we'll be moving from Syria to Japan to speak with Dr. Emma Dalton, who is a specialist in gender inequity in Japan, and she's going to be talking about the Japanese feminist activism in the Me Too era and the representation of women in, in Japanese politics. So, yeah, really excited to have that chat with Emma Dalton. Sounds like a busy show again. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's hop straight in uh, with yep. our first uh, segment. Okay, so hi, Kahi. How are you? Hi, I'm good. All right, good. So thank you so much for coming here to talk to me, uh, me today and for our special segment of our International Women's Day. Um, so I want, to, I want to ask you, based on your journey as a young woman journalist, so how was it like working in Malaysia throughout your career? Um. Actually, I joined the independent media, Malaysia Kini, when I was a freshly graduate from university. So I would say it was a very eye-opening experience for me personally um, to quickly uh, know about the overall political or social situations in my own country. Uh, because I was studying overseas, so going back to Malaysia and joining uh, the media lens, um, the media industries uh, was a uh, to, to me, it's, it's, a, it's a way for me to quickly understand what is going on. Yeah. And in fact, uh, being a woman journalist is not quite a special thing in Malaysia because um, the number of female journalists is apparently um, always higher than the male journalists. So I don't really feel um, like obvious burial to be a woman uh, mm -hmm. and a journalist in Malaysia. But it is also a fact that uh, many of the editors, most of the editors, 
especially at the highest uh, decision making levels, are male, uh, are um are men. So yes. Um and also from what I observe in the office is that the long working hours and uh, the shift works are not so friendly to working moms. Mm. So so for working women, as a mom. And therefore, it is also a trend that um, young women uh, will started to leave to left journalism uh, oh. in their thirties or after getting married or pregnant. So it is hard for them to be back to the front line again, and it is hard for them to um, climb the corporate ladder as a male colleague. It is what I observe, but it it is not my own experience because I I didn't get married and uh, yeah, yeah, that's all. <laughs> yeah, I see. So it, for uh, maybe for your case, it's not there was no exact yeah. like barrier in the woman sense that much, but then for uh, generally there's still that barrier and discrepant um I guess challenges for women in Malaysian media. Yeah. So mm, I see. So and then you I. When I research about you, you said you enjoy you enjoy researching and writing about environment and gender related topics that occur in Malaysia. So, what made you passionate writing about that? Mm, actually, as a non heterosexual person, I think I started to think about uh, gender and sexuality related stuff at a very very young age, maybe uh, in the high school. So. So it has been my passion to explore and question about the complexity of uh, gender or sexuality. Um, and in Malaysia, given that um, the very limited space for media freedom and also freedom of speech, actually positive discussions about heterosexuals or uh, transgender topics are very, very less relatively less if compared to other countries, I would say. So yeah, I think um, when I I have the opportunity to work in an influential media in Malaysia, and it, it is also a comparatively independent and bold, bold media in Malaysia. So I, I think I should try to open up more space uh, for the topic and or at least writing more about um, the lived experiences that I see in 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 the country, mm-hmm. or to to reduce the demonization, yeah, uh, about about especially LGBT or some even more marginalized community. Yeah, and for mm, you also asked about environmental issues, right? So to be honest, I was started because just because I was assigned to do <laughs> so. Uh, but later, I found that uh, with my uh, more introvert personality or the ability to quietly dig up complex data and mm-hmm. de- analyze uh, the re- relationship between uh, maybe environmental problem and the politicals or business linkage between them. So, so I have the ability to to analyze this kind of thing. So, so I mm-hmm. actually can contribute with my um my my ability that I that I found it I have. So oh. so therefore I, I was gradually uh, doing more and more uh, environmental related stuff uh, 
for example, investigations are covering under underreported uh, issues. So that is, that, that is why I, I do environmental reports as well. So yeah, it, it is not a like inspiring story because I, I, I was just assigned and then thought that I can actually do quite okay. So, so I just continue doing it. I see. Well, that's okay. I mean, not everyone, <laughs> you know, not everyone has a very dramatic or like kind of sorry, sorry, but it's still it's still interesting to see that. Um, obviously, even though you you started going through environment because you were assigned to do it, but then like seeing how like you mentioned you you are quite you feel quite introverted. Um, uh, according to your personality, but then you you somehow you take advantage of your own personality and your own confidence of it to go and tackle such important topics and then obviously you manage to uncover um stories relating to uh, uh sorry uh, stories about the environment and uh, and mining companies that have have relations to malaysian royalty which not many people can you know manage to uncover truth like that and i think that's so brave of you as well because these kind of things are usually quite i would say kept quiet about and then uh, and then also like you know it's you they usually say like the silent ones are usually the scariest ones. So it's, so it's like, yeah, that's, very, that's very amazing for you to, yeah, do such. Thank you for the kind words. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Uh, yeah, and then um, I, also, uh, and I also saw regarding to your portfolio that you write both in English and Mandarin articles and both have kind of, you, you still go for like same, same articles but just different languages in a sense, but you also... Uh, maybe probably wrote more for your Mandarin articles because that's what you're confident in. And that with that, what was the challenges of switching between these two? Mm, actually, um, being multilingual as a journalist in Malaysia is quite normal because it is a very diverse country. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so um, to, to write in both language, we also need to think about your target audience because... Um, for, for example, like Malay Muslim community may know about more more in depth about Palestine and Israel conflict, mm -hmm. and for a Chinese speaking community, they maybe know more about uh, Hong Kong China conflicts because of their proximity, like Islam proximities or Chinese language proximities. So, so when writing about an issues, you need to understand your target audience uh, maybe knowledge level or their uh, what they have already known about and to what extent you need to explain in details for them for them not feeling to like be uh, mm -hmm. they have already known about so so no need to explain too much right so so when switching between language that is the thing that i i think i need to think about and also the re reading habits i think Chinese readers can accept that I wrote a 10,000 words piece, mm. but for English readers, I think they tend to read, like if you separate it into three pieces with different titles, so, so they don't have to read a very, very long articles. Mm. So for the transgender healthcare rights uh, reports that you mentioned, I think that is what we do. So for the Chinese version, we just... Uh, published in, in, in one piece. So for the English version, we separate into two or three pieces to publish. Yeah. Oh, 
Oh, but uh, you mentioned that for Mandarin, it's okay to read like 10,000 words. Uh, why, why is that the case? Huh? I'm actually quite curious about that. It is, it, it, it really depends. Huh? Not, not mm. just about language. Because uh, I think for a Chinese reader in Malaysia, uh, when they want to read a feature report, they have their prepare, they have the mental preparation to, to read a very long piece. But I don't think there is such a reading environment among the English English reader. So mm -hmm. our editor will tend to separate it into yeah, few few articles with different focus instead of like make a complex form of writing in mm -hmm. one article. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It is my experience that it is not like I, I, I don't have a scientific analysis on this, <laughs> thing, but yeah. Yeah, it is my yeah. experience. Yeah. I see. Yeah, that's quite that's quite interesting. It was quite interesting when you brought up about that because usually um when we when we write articles in Australia, it's we don't really have to think about like all different languages, uh target audiences and stuff and we just focus on like what should be put out there and what should we let the readers know. And then mm -hmm. with that also we only take into consideration of consideration of word count if it's like assignment-based kind of thing. But like, in, but like, usually that's not too much to worry about because unless we're writing a long-form feature, mm -hmm. like, then there obviously that's going to be more things to talk about. So yeah, it's quite interesting to bring in this like different aspect to writing in English and Mandarin. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so with your career, you obviously been very successful and you you won an award for for your for your journalism as well when you wrote about the environment and also the transgender rights in Malaysia. And what do you what do you hope to see yourself in the future? Eh, sorry, what do you hope to see in the future for yourself as a journalist? Mm, actually, currently I I'm pursuing my master degree. Uh, mm -hmm. while being a freelance journalist and sometimes also an editor for two uh new emerging Australian-based media. Yeah, one is called mm. Missing Perspective. The other one is called This is Southeast Asia. So, of course, I, I hope that I will have more and more opportunities to write about things that I sincerely care about. Um, but, but I also think that it is worth to mention that during my um, master program, uh, the studying journey, um, it opened up my mind to see a more complex uh, colonial impact in Asian countries, including um, how, what is the histories or how, that, how the normativity of gender and sexuality was built um, in the current colonial period and how do we look at that and how do we um, transform it in the post-colonial times. So, so I really hope that... Uh, that I can bring this kind of uh, post-colonial critical reflection approach into journalism instead of just um, uh, referencing to the international human rights standards that we used to. So, so it is a bit, com a bit complex here, but, but uh, it is part of uh, my goal. Um, if it, because if you ask, how I will see my future. So, so this is part of my future goal that I I hope that I can do. Yeah. I see. 
uh, hope that you get to achieve that very soon. Yeah. And yeah, so uh, yeah, we might be running out of time soon. So a uh, final question to you. What, what advice can you give to all em emerging young journalists out there? Even though now you don't really focus much on that, but you know, you still have, I, I, you have a lot of, conf you have a lot of experience already. Yeah, yeah I would say, um, especially, especially for those uh, journalists in certain countries that face um, the authoritarian revival in this recent years, for example, Hong Kong, Myanmar, or maybe Thailand. Um, it is not easy job to be a journalist, but let's don't give up too fast. And I think your persistence matters and the truth with preview. Um, so I don't have much advice to give, just mm, yeah, hang on and don't give up and keep it, keep it up. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that's all from me. Okay. All right. Uh, thank you so much, Kahui, for your time. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. That was Wong Kai Hui, a young Malaysian female journalist, speaking about her journey in media in Malaysia. If you want to read more of her articles, you can head to her portfolio website called Chloe Wong, uh, with the K, letter K, Chloe, instead of C, and Wong, W-O-N-G dot com. What great advice, persistence matters. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, especially in journalism, especially in journalism. Yeah. It's so important. Mm, and great to have a perspective from Malaysia. Thanks, Grace, for yeah, bringing that. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad I got to talk to her about this, uh, about her journey. And yeah, I'm so glad that she wanted to talk to me as well. Yeah, so, yeah, so we look out an honor. For, for her work in the future. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Definitely. And um, just right now, we'll play a short community service announcement and we'll be back with um, Deb Harland, um, who spoke to an audience in Perth. Tune in to 3CR's annual International Women's Day broadcast, 24 hours of women and non-binary news, views and music on Wednesday the 8th of March. We want to celebrate the resistance, talent, strength and power of women and genderqueer living here in the Kulin Nation and of those living, fighting and creating change all over so-called Australia and the world. This International Women's Day celebration is a celebration of feminism that knows that liberation from gender depression can never be achieved without dismantling all systems of domination and subjugation. From midnight Sunday the 7th of March until midnight on Monday the 8th of March, we'll bring you 24 hours of radio by women and non-binary presenters, producers and musicians. For details, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash IWD 2023. And welcome back. You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast on International Women's Day. Uh, right now, we're going to be listening to U.S. Cabinet Seg Secretary Deb Haaland, who is a First Nations woman from America and who is also a member of the Laguna Pueblo tribe and a 35th generation New Mexican. Haaland is also the First Nation 
the first First Nations American to serve as a cabinet secretary in the United States. She recently visited Perth, where she shares her view on the value of Indigenous knowledge in, a glo- in global climate management. Let's take a listen. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much, Ambassador Kennedy. Thank you, Ingrid, for that beautiful um, welcoming. And Gordon for, um, for, for everything. Uh, the son of a teacher, is, uh, it's so wonderful when um, people choose to teach in Indian country. Because it's not always easy, but thank you for your service. Thank you um, to Ambassador Kennedy for that kind introduction, and thank you to the Perth U.S. Asia Center for hosting today's discussion that is so important for Australia, the United States, and the entire planet. Hello, everyone. It is such an honor to be here with you today, and thank you to those who are joining us online. Before I begin, I would like to join Ambassador Kennedy in acknowledging the Wodjunk people of the Noongar Nation as the traditional custodians of the land we stand on. My name is Deb Holland, and I serve as the 54th Secretary of the United States Department of the Interior under President Joe Biden. I am so proud to be here in Western Australia as the first cabinet secretary to visit in over a decade. We all have lived experiences that we bring into this work. For me, some core perspectives are that I nurtured my child as a single mom. I'm a public servant, a marathon runner, and I was raised in a military family. My dad was a third-generation Norwegian-American and my mother's family can trace its heritage back 35 generations in the United States state of New Mexico. I'm a proud member of the Pueblo of Laguna, an indigenous community that has called the Southwest United States home for millennia. I am so thrilled to be here in Perth and visiting this beautiful country. Like many indigenous communities around the world, much of my identity reflects the land my people come from. Over millennia, my ancestors used traditional knowledge and practices that were passed down through generations of people who learned to survive and thrive in the high desert landscape. They migrated to the Rio Grande Valley in the late 1200s, which makes my 35th generation distinction a proud part of my biography. My ancestors used their knowledge to manage and escape drought, to feed their families, to care for the earth, and to coexist with the land, water, and wildlife that sustain them. I think it's fair to say that even to this day, no one knows my homelands better than its original stewards and their descendants. As a child, I was lucky to have some of this wisdom shared with me. Living in Mesita, our small village on the Pueblo of Laguna, I spent many days with my grandfather as we tended our cornfield. While we hoed weeds and picked worms off of each ear of corn, he would tell me the history and stories of the land. He taught me how the rain and snow that coated the mountains fed our river, which fed our cornfield, and in turn fed us. 
In that cornfield, he taught me how our actions are connected to the land and the land to every single person. Like my grandfather, my dad made sure my siblings and I experienced nature as much as possible. Whether it was a hike through a rolling mountain range or a walk across a sandy beach, I constantly saw the beauty of this earth and the countless reasons why we must protect it. These lessons continue to inform the work I do at the department. They taught me that our relationship with nature must be reciprocal and that the land and its offerings are gifts that we must never take for granted. As Secretary of the Interior, I lead the federal agency tasked with, in many ways, stewarding the United States' direct relationship with the Earth. The department oversees 480 million acres of U.S. public lands, which is over two-thirds the size of Western Australia. Along with federal waters, the department oversees the energy development, conservation, and wildlife management policies that impact these vast and irreplaceable spaces. Additionally, we uphold what we refer to as the federal government's nation-to-nation relationship and treaty responsibilities with 574 sovereign tribal nations, the equivalent of First Nations here in Australia. At one point in time, the department I now lead was tasked with either exterminating or assimilating indigenous people like me, a painful history that our two countries intimately share. I am the first cabinet secretary who brings the trauma of surviving federal assimilation policies to the decision-making table. As secretary, I stand on the shoulder of those who came before me, who survived those painful pages of our history so that I could be here today. With so much responsibility for the health and well-being of the land and people, our department is well positioned to help address the greatest challenge of our lifetime, the climate crisis. But to do that, we must work across the globe to find collaborative solutions. Intensifying wildfires, historic droughts, disastrous flooding, and disappearing wildlife threaten the futures and national security of every country on Earth. Our countries are both experiencing the devastating impacts of a rapidly changing climate and have already created a model of collaboration to meet that challenge head-on. The United States assisted during the Black Summer bushfires of 2019 and 2020 by sharing wildland fires to stop the blaze, just as Australia did for our 2018 fire season. Thirteen times in our history, our countries have come together to help each other fight these fires. We owe a great debt to those who put their lives on the line and those who give the ultimate sacrifice to protect our communities. Today, both our countries are experiencing or bracing for yet another season of devastating wildfires. We cannot deny that this is the new reality. Climate change is impacting us all, and it will require all of us using every tool we have to address it. This means creating and strengthening partnerships to meet the moment together. Thankfully, our countries can be a model for international partnerships around the world. Our collaboration literally spans decades. 
Our governments are working together to secure essential components of our clean energy future, from critical mineral data and mapping to offshore wind that will strengthen important supply chains and support good-paying jobs. We're advancing the breakthrough industries like offshore wind development through scientific knowledge sharing that is informing essential regulatory frameworks. As we address drought and water management concerns, we benefit from sharing experiences and information on many issues, from improving dam safety and drought resilience to assessing river basin supply, we can bolster our resilience to the impacts of the climate crisis. Since entering office, President Biden has unleashed an historic all-of-government approach to building a clean energy future, uprooting and addressing environmental injustices, and responsibly conserving the lands and waters that sustain us. We're doing this while ensuring marginalized and historically forgotten communities benefit from this effort. Many countries have established goals to address the climate crisis. And we should all give Australia a hand for your passage of the 2022 climate change bill that outlines greenhouse gas emissions reduction targets of 43% from 2005 levels by 2030 and net zero by 2050. Excellent job. President Biden has also put forward an ambitious contribution under the Paris Agreement to reduce net greenhouse gas emissions between 50 and 52 percent below 2005 levels by 2030. We know that nature is our ally in the fight against climate change, and that's why we're investing in the restoration and conservation of our public lands and waters to help meet our climate goals. In the United States, we have centered this work in an initiative called America the Beautiful, a decade-long challenge to conserve, connect, and restore 30% of our lands and waters by 2030 through voluntary and locally-led conservation. To help meet this goal, the United States is leveraging an essential, globally unutilized, underutilized, excuse me, tool to address our interlocking climate and biodiversity crises indigenous-led conservation, and co-stewardship partnerships. I'm here to tell you that not only is this work possible, it is necessary. And it's already happening across the United States alongside dozens of sovereign tribal nations. Through indigenous-led conservation and co-stewardship initiatives, the United States is creating opportunities for the original stewards of our country's lands and waters to participate and how those lands and waters are managed. What is critical here is that we're putting words into action. And the exciting part is that much of what we are doing can be replicated for a more equitable and climate-resilient future worldwide. Last year, we announced the reacquisition of 465 acres, or almost 190 hectares, at Phones Cliff, a sacred site on the East Coast in Virginia to the Rappahannock tribe. I had the honor of celebrating this acquisition with Chief Ann Richardson, the tribe's leader, as we explored their ancestral homelands. As we took a riverboat tour together, the chief explained to me the importance of this land to the tribe, which was one of the first human encounters to European colonizers. 
While eagles soared overhead, she described how meaningful it would be for the tribe to share their indigenous knowledge and storied history with our country. Her words were a testament to just how impactful our conservation work is for present and future generations. Through the agreement, the tribe will draw on its indigenous knowledge and practices to better manage the area's habitat, which is a globally significant nesting location for resident and migratory bald eagles. The tribe also plans to expand its river education program, which conveys traditional river knowledge and practices to young people and their surrounding communities. The results of this transformative approach to conservation are already being felt, and each of us stands to benefit. As many of you know, the United States holds a vast network of public lands and waters. Conserving these iconic landscapes and their inherent ecological benefits is essential to reaching our climate goals. For centuries, tribes have been excluded from the management of the ancestral homelands they were removed from. Together, we are changing this reality. The Biden-Harris administration celebrated a historic co-management agreement between the Department of the Interior and the five tribes of the Bears Ears National Monument. The monument is a culturally rich and recreationally diverse region comprising nearly 1.4 million acres, over 550,000 hectares, that draws hundreds of thousands of visitors every year. The five southwestern tribes, the Hopi Pueblo, the Navajo Nation, the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe, the Ute Indian Tribe of the Uinta and Ure Reservation, and the Pueblo of Zuni, each have cultural and ancestral connections to the monument's iconic buttes and the thousands of sacred sites that dot the landscape. Through this historic agreement, the tribes will participate in and apply their indigenous knowledge to the long-term management of the monument, which has suffered natural and human-caused damage from drought, erosion, looting, and high visitation rates. When I visited this sacred site on my first trip as secretary, I could feel the power of the earth beneath our feet. It was clear that this was a place we must protect and that the tribes whose ancestors built intricately laid stone homes on the sides of cliffs, harvested the land, and lived their best lives according to the seasons must participate in this work. These tribes now have a path to apply the knowledge and conservation strategies that they developed over generations. This irreplaceable guidance will benefit us all. Centering indigenous knowledge also means empowering indigenous communities, supporting their subsistence lifestyles, and honoring the trust responsibility the federal government has to sovereign tribal nations. In June of last year, the department announced the successful transfer of fish production and staffing at Dorshack National Fish Hatchery to the Nez Perce tribe in the state of Idaho. Since 2005, the hatchery has been jointly managed by the department and the tribe. Each year, it produces millions of steelhead, spring chinook, and coho salmon, fish that are culturally significant to many tribes. When I visited the hatchery to celebrate this transfer, I saw its importance to the Nez Perce people, whose ancestors maintained fishing villages and harvesting traditions that honor the cycles of the fish and the Clearwater River.
Witnessing this historic transfer was something necessary and pure. Through the, full, through the full management of the hatchery, the tribe will nurture and cultivate the fish that have sustained their people with knowledge incurred over millennia. This knowledge is integral to our country as the tribe and surrounding communities adapt to the growing impact of drought across the United States. These agreements are among 20 that have so far been signed during the Biden-Harris administration, and we have 60 more that we're working on. But the United States is not acting alone. Australia is also making important headway toward this shared goal. Just as my ancestors cared for their lands, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have cared for the lands that sustains communities across this country. Here in Australia, members of the Queensland Indigenous Women's Ranger Network are leveraging Indigenous knowledge gained over tens of thousands of years to protect iconic and threatened ecosystems like the Great Barrier Reef. By merging Indigenous knowledge of the environment with modern tools like drones, the Indigenous rangers take a holistic approach to protecting the reef by monitoring coral change, forest fires, and land degradation that threatens imperiled species. Last year, these traditional custodians were awarded the 2022 Earthshot Prize for their work to protect this culturally and spiritually significant region. This prestigious award is recognized across the globe. This global recognition will allow Indigenous women rangers to expand the possibilities for conservation work everywhere. As I often say, there is much to be gained when we respect and integrate Indigenous knowledge into our collaborative conservation initiatives. Many of the challenges we face today, a warming planet, the loss of habitat and wildlife, dying coral reefs, these could have been lessened or completely avoided if early colonists had valued the stewardship practices and environmental wisdom that tribes had cultivated over thousands of years. As secretary, I have the distinct honor to travel to and visit indigenous communities across the United States who maintain their inherent connection to the land, a connection intrinsic to their cultures, languages, and ways of life. The tribes of the Pacific Northwest of the United States, for example, view the salmon, whales, birds, and bears as their own relations. These people were the sea bearers and navigators of this region long before colonizers ever set foot on our continent. When you are of the land and the creatures that depend on it, you tend to it with future generations in mind. If we feed and nurture the land in return, it will take care of us. This is a lesson the entire world can and must benefit from if we want to save this planet for our grandchildren. Now, there are as many cultures as there are tribes. We each celebrate life in different ways. Our belief systems, practices, and traditions differ from one another. And the challenges we face as a planet are vast and varied, and we all have something to contribute. Our solutions should be informed by thousands of years of observation, interaction, and intimate understanding of our planet's natural systems. By centering indigenous-led conservation, we can leverage the diversified and locally informed knowledge of the communities who have always stewarded the land and the waters we all depend on. 
But using indigenous knowledge cannot happen in a vacuum. It requires a fundamental shift in how indigenous communities are treated and how the tragic errors of our nation's past are remedied. This work requires all of us. It requires that every country and leader learn from and build off the progress of others toward our shared goal. It requires listening and learning. It requires action. The future of our children, the future that our children deserve, is not out of reach, but we must act quickly to save it, and we must do it together. Thank you so much to Ambassador Kennedy, to the Perth U.S. Asia Center, and to each of you for being here today. We, I think we're going to do a few things, and then we'll turn to the... And that was U.S. Cabinet Secretary Deb Haaland speaking about Indigenous knowledge systems and the impacts of climate change affecting Indigenous communities and the shared experiences of First Nations people in the United States and Australia. Continuing her tour of Australia Australia last month, Haaland also spoke with Minister for Indigenous Australians Linda Burney where they talked about the voice, truth-telling, and consultation. And now, over to Judith. Okay, thanks, Sonera, for that. And uh, so important to, to value and to hear valuing of thousands of years of conservation by First Nations peoples uh, in Australia and in the United States, and, uh, and the importance of listening, learning, and action. And uh, there's so many ways that that can happen, and we see bits of it happening around Australia. We obviously want lots, lots more. So, um, yeah, we will see how that progresses. Now, if we've been watching telly or listening to the radio over the past month, we've all been deeply moved by the news of the earthquakes in Turkey and in Syria, the devastation, and those earthquakes happened on February the 6th. And, of course, watching very closely the huge efforts of the people carrying out search and rescue operations, um, crying at times when things haven't worked out, and I'll try not to, <laughs> and, uh, and celebrating with each new discovery of someone who's remained alive under the rubble. But as my next guest will explain, while international teams have poured into Turkey, and so they should, on the other side of the border in Syria, the response was catastrophically slow. Dr. Dara Conduit is a lecturer in political science at the University of Melbourne and a non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute in Washington, D.C. She's written an article for The Conversation entitled As Syrians Were Trapped Beneath the Rubble, a Broken UN System Was Held Hostage by the Assad Regime. We spoke last Friday, and I began by asking Dara to tell me about the situation in northwest Syria. Northwest Syria is part of Syria that, as a result of the civil war that began in 2011, is outside of government control. The uprising started in Syria on the back of a big protest movement that was calling for democracy and reform. It transitioned quickly into a civil war and the government lost control of most of the country. Over the last decade, it has wrested back control of the vast majority of the country. There are three sections it doesn't have control of. Northwest Syria is one of those. 
it has a population of almost 5 million people who are predominantly internally displaced people from other parts of Syria. It is probably one of the most deprived areas in the world in terms of the huge number of people before the earthquake hit that were in desperate need of basic food support, housing support. There are millions of people without appropriate shelter, education. It's one of the most difficult places on earth to live in, and it really struggled to get support from the international community long before the earthquake hit. Can you describe what the problems were in delivering humanitarian assistance, even before the earthquake? It's always challenging in a war to deliver aid to populations, particularly once they get beyond the control of the government, because international aid through the United Nations normally comes through the capital of a country. So it normally would be delivered through Damascus and then delivered through the country. Once large parts of Syria became beyond the control of Damascus, it was quite clear that the United Nations couldn't actually get aid to people in need because Damascus didn't control those areas. So that was the first issue. So there was a a resolution passed by the United Nations Security Council in 2014, recognised these extenuating circumstances and allowed aid to be delivered through international borders instead. So there were four border crossings that it was allowed to be delivered through, a crossing from Iraq, there was a crossing from Jordan, and there were two crossings through Turkey, which went into northwest Syria. These border crossings became essential to getting aid to people that needed it in Syria. The problem with the resolution is that the way it was set up is that it has to be renewed every six or 12 months. And this has been weaponized throughout the conflict, particularly by Russia, which is a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council and is a very close partner of the Syrian regime. And it has repeatedly threatened to veto renewal of the resolution and cut off all aid coming across the border. Russia argues that the Syrian war is dormant and it's now appropriate that all aid is delivered via the central government in Syria. The problem with this is that the central government in Syria, led by Bashar al-Assad, has a long track record of withholding aid. There have been outbreaks of things like polio in opposition communities because it withheld polio vaccines from kids. It has a track record of its militias stealing aid. Aid tends to go through corrupt regime partners. There's also an issue with the exchange rate where the UN gets a really unfavourable exchange rate when donating into Syria, which means that the Assad regime prior to the earthquake was siphoning off almost 50 cents to the dollar that was going in there as well. So it is not a reliable partner of aid. At the time of the earthquake, there was only actually one crossing into northwest Syria. Is that right? Yeah. Gradually over the years, Russia has you know, threatened veto. So the border crossings slowly got picked off. By the time the earthquake happened, there was just one border crossing, which is at Bab al-Hawa, which comes from Turkey. The earthquake was so massive that the road to Bab al-Hawa was damaged and UN trucks couldn't get through. As of 28th of February, more than 4,500 people have been killed in the area and there were more than 8,700 people have been injured as a result in an area that already didn't have a functioning healthcare system and didn't have enough doctors and also didn't have the heavy machinery that one would need to conduct an effective search and rescue operations. So when the earthquake struck, there was very little in the way of resources inside northwest Syria and people there were totally reliant on help from the outside. And that help just didn't come. So when people are stuck under the rubble in freezing conditions, it's the middle of winter, time is of the essence. And by the time the international community got aid into northwest Syria, it was too late. It became a body recovery operation, not a search and rescue. It's really painful to hear about. It must have been really, really difficult to watch what was going on. 
This has hit really hard for Syrians all over the world, including in Australia. There are a lot of people in the Syrian community in Australia who have been absolutely devastated. And I think one of the most frustrating things is that the challenges of getting aid into northwest Syria are not new. When aid delivery is totally reliant on a single border crossing, there was always a vulnerability that something would happen to that crossing and aid would be cut off. It's also every six months that literally the lives of these people are debated on the UN Security Council over whether or not to even renew the authorization to, to get aid into this area. So that's what's really frustrating. Syrians knew this could happen, and it did. That was the avenue through which international aid was delivered. Is that right? The avenue through which United Nations aid is delivered. So non-United Nations agencies can deliver through other crossings. United Nations only goes through that crossing. Now, the most infuriating part about this entire situation is that International legal experts have argued for years now that the UN is over-interpreting the Security Council resolution and that it can use other crossings. International humanitarian law permits them to use other crossings. And even when the earthquake happened, Bab al-Hawa was damaged, there were other crossings that were usable and the UN still didn't move until the Syrian regime, maybe almost a week in, I think, announced that the UN could use two additional border crossings in Syria. The most frustrating part of that is that A, the UN could have already been using them and they didn't, and B, the UN's insistence on deferring to the central government in Syria is just so ridiculous because they don't even control these crossings. Literally, there are not Syrian regime officials on these border crossings because they don't control that part of the country. I suspect the internal logic at the United Nations is there are also millions of people inside Syria who need aid. And if we irritate the Assad regime, they may just cut us off completely. So they may not let us get aid into Syria proper either. And they may not renew the Security Council resolution at all. So, you know, it's better to do this deal than to totally lose. I suspect that is the logic. And of course, once earthquake aid started coming in, Damascus insisted that it went through Damascus, it went through the central government. It did. And it, you know, it managed to do its normal thing where it held them up and it bartered for aid and it played its old game where it continued to weaponize aid and use it to its own advantage. Like I recognize that it's a really difficult choice for the UN to make, but it is in this position because over years and years, it has let the Assad regime and also Russia get away with this. Every six months, the Security Council does this massive dance and it comes down to the last few hours of the aid renewal before we can find out whether the people of northwest Syria are going to have food tomorrow or not. But the second thing is, why was the UN not prepared for this crisis? This is a geographically unstable region. Earthquakes are known to happen in the region. So why was it that when the UN finally got its first convoy of aid in, which was four days into the earthquake, it turned out it was a convoy that had a consignment that had been prearranged. So it was full of things like nappies and other humanitarian aid, which of course is still needed, but it was not disaster recovery aid. One rescuer who was quoted, I think in the New York Times said, the children under the rubble don't need nappies. We need to be able to get these kids out. Nappies aren't going to help us. Why wasn't it able to pivot and respond quickly to this? Dara Conjurat. And if you've just joined us on Wednesday Breakfast, Dara's been telling us about the UN's slow response, providing earthquake relief to the people of northwest Syria, and how even before the earthquake, the Assad regime, supported by Russia on the UN Security Council, made it almost impossible to get aid into the region. 
and there were international sanctions against the Assad regime at the time of the earthquake. I asked our conduit to tell me more about that. The Assad regime faces a whole raft of sanctions, predominantly related to its human rights abuses that have taken place during the Syrian conflict. Some of them have been found in international courts to amount to crimes against humanity. These are very, very serious abuses, and these sanctions play a really important role in trying to deter that. The Assad regime has forever claimed that sanctions are making the Syrian people suffer and has used every opportunity to get those sanctions lifted including the moment that the earthquake happened, the the Assad regime said, well, you have to lift sanctions. I'm not a sanctions expert, but those who are have made it quite clear that it technically should not be a barrier to getting humanitarian aid into the country. In practice, it is because the sanctions uh, included as sanctions on institutions and the banking sector and that sort of thing, which actually made it really difficult for people to donate money to Syrian organisations. The US quickly moved to lift sanctions for a period which will make aid delivery easier. But the Assad regime looks to be positioning itself to benefit as much as possible from this. Assad has been an international pariah for the last 12 years. And since the earthquake, he has welcomed large numbers of international dignitaries, large numbers of international aid, particularly from across the Middle East into the country as people begin to deal with him like he is a legitimate head of state. You're calling for the UN to make changes in how it delivers humanitarian aid. We are only three or four months from the next cross-border resolution renewal again. People are speculating that the fact that the Assad regime opened these two additional borders for a three-month period, that he is going to try to get something back for that. And people are very worried that what he is going to get back is a closure of the cross-border. If people do want to contribute to northwest Syria to provide some aid. Are there organizations they can go to to do that? So there are some organizations in northwest Syria. Most of them are registered in the US because of the nature of previous sanctions. The organization that did the bulk of the rescue efforts were the White Helmets, which are a civil defense organization that was formed during the civil war in order to rescue people out of rubble from bombings. They were the ones that responsible for most of the successful rescue effort. But there are others as well, like Molham Team or Syria Relief and Development. The immediate earthquake rescue mission has ended, but there are still enormous needs, a risk of cholera. They have 50,000 suspected cholera cases already. Disruption to everyday health issues. The healthcare system has been so badly disrupted by the earthquake that now you're looking at the risk of maternal and child health deaths, the risk of vaccination issues, lack of access to clean water. The needs are immense and there are a lot of organisations doing really important life-saving work on the ground. The UN is also doing important life-saving work on the ground. number of people that they can support dwarfs everything else, but the UN needs to face a reckoning for the way that it has failed northwest Syria over the last decade, but particularly since the earthquake. Dara, what kind of response have you had to your paper? I've had a really positive response. I've had a lot of journalists reach out. I work on Syria, but you could say that nine out of 10 media requests that I get are about Iran. You know, Iran's always seen as the center of, of politics in the region and Syria is often forgotten. So it's been really great to actually see the world's interest turn a little bit back to Syria because it is one of the greatest humanitarian crises of our time. Lots of interesting people reach out to me, particularly earthquake engineers as well, 
talking about their frustration in this too because we know how to build earthquake safe buildings and this has been the big discussion that's taken place in Turkey which was even worse hit by the earthquake although it had a much better aid response there were building regulations that were not upheld in Turkey that would have meant that these buildings stood it's a little bit different in Syria because a those regulations don't exist and b Part of the reason why this earthquake has been so devastating is that because of the lack of appropriate shelter in Syria, a lot of people were living in buildings that weren't structurally sound to start with. These are buildings that the Assad regime has been bombing for more than a decade. Dari, you're also a member of the Women Middle East Researchers in Australia group. When was it set up? 2018 or 2019 in response to the need to create a network of women Middle East researchers around the country. We're a few of us at each university, but we're kind of dotted around the country. So we set this up to bring everyone together and sort of create a supportive network to both help build the capacity, particularly of junior scholars and PhD students, but just to also to create a supportive community. The other main reason was to create a way for journalists and the media to contact us and to make sure that they had access to women researchers of the Middle East and North Africa. We, when you turn on the radio, you often hear something will have happened in Iran and you'll hear a male colleague who did their PhD on Morocco, you know, 40 years ago, giving expertise on Iran when there are brilliant researchers in this country, particularly from these countries. And that's something that we really prioritize is supporting women who are from the Middle East so that their voices will be heard in the media. Journalists actually have responded really well to that. We create referrals all the time. Great to see the way that Womena members have been able to contribute. Dr. Dara Conduit. Lecturer in political science at the University of Melbourne and a member of the Women Middle East Researchers in Australia group. Big thank you to Dara for drawing our attention to this issue. And it is so interesting that once you are focused and once you hear about something like this, you become attuned to other stories coming through on the same issue. And just yesterday on Al Jazeera, there was a story about doctors in northwest Syria calling for help because they're having to deal with a lot of um, injuries that were related to people being stuck under the debris. And those are particularly specialist kind of injury. And uh, they're saying they need uh, the expertise and they need assistance. So the story will continue. And it's really important to keep our eye, I think, on what's happening. And it's going to be fascinating to see what the UN does next in relation to the Assad regime in Syria. So uh, really grateful to Dara Conduit for coming on. She did point out, of course, that many of the women in their network aren't able to speak because they have relatives that still live in authoritarian regimes. So sometimes other people have to do the talking in those kinds of situations. Iran would be typical, but I imagine in Syria as well, if people have relatives that are in within the regime area, the area controlled by the regime, yeah, they've got to be particularly careful. Big thanks to, to Dr. Dara Conduit for, yeah, chatting with us here on Wednesday Breakfast. And uh, because it's International Women's Day, I'm, we're going to play a song that's a celebration of First Nations women. And it's by Oisa. came out about four years ago, and I said, Sister Girls.
Listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast on International Women's Day. I'm Claudia, and we're here in the studio with Sonera, Grace, and Judith. And we've been hearing lots of uh, stories about women and women's voices from around the globe. We're now going to turn to Japan, a country where women enjoy an average lifespan of 88 years, and the economy is the third largest in the world. But zoom in closely, and it is clear that women in Japan face a host of challenges resulting from gender imbalance. In fact, as our next guest will explain, the social and political conditions experienced by Japanese women are severe, even in comparison to those in East Asia. Dr. Emma Dalton is a specialist in gender inequity in Japan and the representation of women in Japanese politics. 
She has authored a number of books, including Voices from the Contemporary Japanese Feminist Movement, which provides an up-to-date picture of Japanese feminist activists in the Me Too era. Dr. Dalton currently works as a Japanese lecturer at La Trobe University. She joins us now on International Women's Day to tell us about the barriers affecting Japanese women and the grassroots activists working to improve their lives. Good morning, Emma. Good morning, Claudia. Thank you for that introduction. Thank you for joining um, just, us. Yeah, I'd just like to yeah, acknowledge my co-author of uh, that book you mentioned, Voices from the Contemporary Japanese Feminist Movement. I wrote that with my colleague from RMIT University, Caroline Norma. Thank you for that. Can you tell us how women and girls in Japan rate in terms of gender equality compared to the rest of the world and what are the key indicators? Yeah, sure. So uh, the World Economic Forum puts out a report every year called the Global Gender Gap Index. And this measures the gap between men and women in the country based on four indicators of um, economic empowerment, political representation, health uh, and wellbeing and education. And in that uh, Global Gender Gap Index, Japan does very badly. In fact, it's the lowest ranking country amongst uh, advanced democracies. Um, and it is low, it ranks low because it does so badly in two of those domains, which is economic empowerment and political representation. So there aren't, um, there's not good representation of women in politics. In fact, at the national level, in the lower house or the House of Representatives, um, women count for less than 10% of the seats. And um, this is what brings Japan down the ranking, as well as the situation of women in the workforce, which is um, quite uh, bad because of women's uh, their typical position in the what's called a non-regular workforce. So a lot of women, in fact, most women, uh, are employed in precarious work, like part-time or casual or temp work, which doesn't come with any of the benefits of regular work like, you know, paid leave, um, career development, that sort of stuff. So the pay gap is quite big. It's I think it's the second or third largest in um, the uh, advanced democratic world. Yeah, and Japan is the only country in the G7 which bans same-sex marriage as well, which right. is, uh, yes. you know, okay. significant in terms of, yeah, what we're talking about today in terms of inclusiveness and women in the in international uh, arena. Yeah. I think the, um, the same-sex marriage issue is being dealt with on a administrative, like a, a administrative level. So, the well, the country-level uh, government bans it. I think places in Tokyo, smaller um, councils, are making changes and are accepting same-sex, maybe not marriage, but same-sex unions. So, for example, um, uh, people on visas you know, from overseas who want to come up until recently, uh, if they were gay, then they couldn't have anyone else on their dependent visa. But the, so local-level councils are changing. It. They're a bit more progressive than the um, national-level government. That's good to hear. Yeah. Look, talking about gender equity in Japan, it's such a big topic and we could spend hours discussing why it is so prevalent in Japan. 
Is there any one overarching structure or value system that creates the foundation for inequality, perhaps something that is not seen in other countries or societies that you can speak to to frame the discussion this morning? Mm, um, yeah, look, I think from I think a lot of what a lot of people from outside Japan don't realise is the economic situation in Japan at the moment. So you mentioned at the beginning that Japan is the third largest economy in the world. Uh, yes, that that's that's right. It used to be the second largest, and China took over a few years ago, and now it's the third largest. Um, but what that means to people, like the average person in Japan, is not much. So. Since the 1990s, so for 30 years, there hasn't been pay rise in Japan. Pay rises have have stopped. They've stagnated. Pay has stagnated. Um, So you can imagine 30 years of um, no pay rise or minimal pay rise has had quite an effect on people's daily life. So there's been an increase in poverty. There's been a huge increase in precarious work, especially that's that's had a negative impact on women particularly. So most of the women who have entered the workforce since uh, 1990, basically, have been have entered on these precarious uh, contracts or part-time or casual um, work conditions. So the position of women in the workforce is quite dire, and what that means is financial disempowerment. So the ability to be, to, ability to be financially independent um, is very difficult. In fact, most women in Japan they have jobs, they work, but most women are not. They don't have careers, so a lot of women are not financially independent. And this has, obviously, um, repercussions on how much freedom they have. Thank you. And uh, I know that as a result of that uh, non-regular work uh, that Mm. Japanese women are doing, that they suffered particularly poorly during the pandemic because... Yeah, that's right. It was their jobs that um, were often cut. and, and, And in addition to that, they were often bearing the, the sort of health responsibilities in their, their homes and families and communities. Yeah, exactly. So they, they lost, um, a lot of women lost their jobs because when you're in um, non-regular work, you're easier to let go of. You don't have as many rights as workers. So a lot of women lost their jobs. And um, so the Japanese government um, had this uh, commission, this report that actually called the pandemic a women's recession because of how badly women were affected by it. Turning to sexual violence in Japan, the Japanese legal system does not protect women very well when it comes to sexual crimes. The country's legal sexual age of consent is 13 years. There is no legal consent standard for rape and the country maintains no sex offenders register. There's also a prevalence of uh, sexual assault of underage girls on public transport, um, exploitation of vulnerable schoolgirls, many of whom are fleeing unsafe home environments. Uh, these are everyday occurrences. Why are Japanese women not angry about these things? Um, I think they are. <laughs> I think they are angry. Um, but perhaps they express their anger a little bit differently to what we see or what we saw in um, the Me Too movement in the West. Um, It's very difficult for women to speak out about sexual harassment and assault in Japan. And um, one of the best, I guess, proof of this or a a, a thorough indication of this was um, Shiori Ito's experience in, I think it was the late 
uh, I think it was 2017. Uh, she wrote a book about her experience. So she was she's a journalist, and she became sort of the, the face of Japan's Me Too movement. She was raped by another journalist, and um, she decided to prosecute, and it, she found it very, very difficult. It took her years to get a successful prosecution, and even then it was through the civil courts rather than the criminal courts because she was unsuccessful through the criminal courts. And she wrote a book about her experience called Black Box. It's been translated into English. And the difficulties that she faced, just going through the police, going through the court system, and the backlash that she faced um, online and in person from the media, from the general public, um, was so extreme that uh, she, well, first of all, she ended up in hospital with post-traumatic stress disorder. And then ultimately, even though she was successful um, and he was uh, fined however much money in the civil courts, um, she ended up having, having to move. So she doesn't live in Japan anymore. She lives in uh, London. And she's a journalist and she's um, not only has she written that book, she's um, made a few documentaries. So if you're interested in that, I'd highly recommend looking her up. And that's Shiori Ito. So she gives an insight into what victims of sexual assault have to go through in Japan to um, get their claims heard. And she's unusual because she's actually Western educated. She speaks English. Um, so she is not perhaps representative of the average Japanese woman who doesn't have that particular cultural cachet to draw on. So the average Japanese woman um, finds it very difficult to um, speak out against sexual assault or, or harassment because of the backlash that happens. So, yeah, I would say that a lot of Japanese women are angry, but the backlash and the the walls that they face, the barriers that they face when they do speak out are so huge that it's off-putting. Mm. Thank you. And coming to your book, Voices from the Contemporary Japanese Feminist Movement, co-authored with Dr. Caroline Norma, you showcase the voices of six women activists working in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about these women and the, the work that they're doing? Yes, yeah, sure. Um, so uh, let, me, let me start with, I'll start with uh, Minori Kitahara. She is a writer and a businesswoman, and um, she is probably one of Japan's most prolific and most well-known writers. She writes for left-leaning magazines, and she runs a female-only um, sex goods, sex education shop that has an actual shop in Tokyo and has an online presence as well. And she spearheaded... Um, What's called the flower or the flower demo, flower demo. Um, I guess you'd call them demonstrations, where this was just after. Um, this was, I guess during what we would call the Me Too movement. Um, so that was organised. Speaking of getting angry, um, organised in response to four uh, court cases that found men, male um, perpetrators, sexual violence perpetrators not guilty, that were quite shocking to everyone, to all women in Japan. So, for example, one of them was um, uh, a girl had been raped by her father for years and years and years, and the court found the man not guilty because she 
could have fought back or something crazy like that. Um, there was, that was one case. And there were three other cases, similar cases, that were quite horrific. And so Kitahara Minori, um, you know, rounded up her friends and her other sort of feminist groups, which she has many connections to, and started this flower demo, which is a meeting in, I think it's the first of um, each month, or no, the first Sunday or the first Saturday, I can't quite remember, of each month, outside any train station that you live near. And this is this became a um, a place where a lot of victims actually started going and they would pass around a microphone and start just talking about their experience. Um, so Kitahara Minori is very... Um, she, she has good connections with all feminist groups around the country and she also has good connections with the feminist movement in South Korea. So she um, she's quite a, a leading feminist in that regard. Uh, who else did we interview? Yamamoto Jun is the another woman we interviewed, and she is a survivor activist for the sexually abused. So she is a survivor of um, incest, and um, she started uh, an organisation that attempted to lobby the government to change the law about, um, I think you mentioned at the beginning, um, the age of consent and also the, um, the, law, the rape laws. Then there was Nito Yumeno, who is uh, a young woman who runs a social outreach organisation in the heart of Tokyo, helping uh, teenage girls who have maybe dropped out of school or they have a home life that is not too safe, they don't really want to go home, so they find themselves hanging around Shibuya at night time. Shibuya is like the night district in Tokyo. And so she goes to the chat to other girls, Give some connections to um, local government, um, uh, like help centres. Emma, um, unfortunately, um, we are running out of time, and um, the work being done with by these women is um, is worthy of an interview about each of them. Um, yeah, 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 sorry, yeah, it is. We um, perhaps can get you back to share a little bit more because uh, I think it is really important to uh, talk about what's what's happening on the ground in Japan as opposed to uh, the the thinkers on feminism. These are the, mm. the workers. Mm. Um, mm. Finally, just to wrap up very quickly... Um, You've said that uh, that decades of decline in the status of Japanese women has largely gone unnoticed by the global feminist movement. Mm. How can global feminists support the efforts of local Japanese activists and what can our listeners do to uh, show their solidarity? We've got mm. about mm-hmm. one minute. Okay, good question. Um, so I would recommend, you know... To- Starters start reading um, about Japan, um, so go online and have a look at what the Japanese feminists uh, are saying. And also, what's happened recently in the last years, few years, which has made things a little bit more accessible, is a lot of women writers um, are being translated. Their novels are being translated, and a lot of these women are quite feminist. So I would recommend. Um, mm, yes, I read them myself. Yeah, so Miyako Kawakami is yes, one of them. Yes, breast and eggs. Yes, breast and eggs, and. <laughs> So for you know for people who aren't really involved in activism or anything like that or don't know where to start, starting with novels I think is a good idea. Yes, she's another um, feminist writer who writes really really good books about the situation of women in Japan. Fantastic. Well, I might pop a few of those names on our, our show notes. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. My pleasure.
That was La Trobe University lecturer and gender equity specialist, Dr. Emma Dalton, speaking about the work being done at a grassroots level to improve the lives of women and girls in Japan. And as I said, I'll put all the the links to uh, the book and those other things that we've talked about on our show notes. I love the idea of people standing in front of the train stations with flowers. I think that's that would be such an embarrassment mm. <laughs> to, yeah. the, to the government. I mean, some really innovative ideas and a really hostile environment in Japan. Women struggle, for sure, as, as we've heard, on lots of levels. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's all that we've got, got for... That the show this morning thank you to all our guests and thanks for listeners for joining us on international women's day hope you this morning yeah and lots more great listening here on 3cr for international women's day so stay tuned to 855 am on your dial if you're on your dial in the car or at home and or check out the website thank you all so much and hope you have a great international women's day and a great week 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.